Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Jadavis Show. I'm your host, Jacob Valliere. Glad to have you with us on Victory Tuesday, third straight Victory Tuesday for the Washington football team. They are 3-0 and since the bye week. Look, it's it wasn't pretty last night against Seattle. Washington beat the Seahawks last night on Monday Night Football 17-15. to um, Like I said, it wasn't pretty. You know, it was kind of a tough win. They grinded it out. Seattle nearly had a miraculous comeback late in the game, but it was not for uh, to be completed. Um, and the better team won. Uh, so I'll start with Washington um, in a little bit um, because that is the big topic. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, by the way. I know I did. Uh, me and my wife went with her family to the mountains in Bryson City, North Carolina, uh, my in-laws rented a cabin, and we uh, got to stay at a nice cabin with a hot tub and a game room upstairs and a nice uh, little living room, and it was just very cozy. It was great. We we watched the Cowboys lose to the Raiders in overtime, which, you know, I could, you can never complain about a Cowboy loss on Thanksgiving, um, and that was great. Uh, we, we had – it was a lot of fun. We went on a little walk. If you've never been through – Bryson City, um, it is one of those places that you never hear about. You never hear people talking about Bryson City, but it's one of those places that you go and you're like, well, why don't I go here more often? Why don't more people talk about this place? Because uh, it's beautiful. It's got a lot of land um, and it's got a very interesting downtown feel to it. Um, you know, a lot of energy, a lot of bars, uh, a lot of nightlife feel to it, um, secluded in you know, deep in the southwest part of North Carolina. And uh, the day before we got there, we went to the Biltmore uh, in Asheville. And if you've never been to the Biltmore, it is absolutely breathtaking. The Biltmore is a big museum house. It's a gargantuan mansion owned by the Vanderbilt family um, and turned into a museum after they moved out. And we went and toured there. Uh, last Wednesday, and I was just blown away. I, I couldn't believe someone had lived in there, and everybody that's listening that's toured the Biltmore Estate before knows that uh, knows what I'm talking about. That it just sort of took your breath away. The one, I mean, the one highlight. So my in-laws, my specifically my father-in-law uh, and my brother-in-law, both went to uh, NC State, and so Friday. So this weekend, this past weekend was rivalry week in college football, and on Friday night, NC State played against. Uh, the North Carolina Tar Heels, and so obviously we watched um, because you know it's it, everybody that knows me. I'm a Washington fan. I hate the Cowboys, uh, and I I have no sympathy for them when they lose. I I dread seeing them win. It's uh, it's awful, um, and so I we watched, and that's how they feel about Carolina. That's how NC State fans feel about UNC is they despise them and they'd have no sympathy for them when they lose and they hate when they win. And when they play each other, it's like the biggest game of the year, no matter what the circumstance is. So we watched the game and it was a pretty bad, I mean, it was, it was an okay game for about three and a half quarters. NC state could not move the ball in the second half. And then we got into late in the fourth quarter and Carolina's driving with uh, their uh, quarterback, Sam Howell, who will probably be a first-round pick in the NFL next year. He was driving, kick a field goal, and with two minutes left, 
it is 30 to 21 UNC leads NC State. NC State's ranked 20 and UNC is unranked, so it's a bit of an upset, you know, an unranked team leading by two scores late in the game against the 20th ranked team in the nation. Well, so <laughs> this is where the drama begins. The uh, NC State gets sacked. I can, please excuse me for not remembering the quarterback's name. Um, he gets sacked on the first play of the ensuing drive, and they have no timeouts. Um, and then, after the sack, second and long, the quarterback throws deep to, I want to get his name right, but I, I won't try for now, throws it to the receiver down the left sideline, and they score a touchdown to make it 30-28 to 28 with... I guess like a minute and a half to go, but NC State has no timeouts. It's a minute and a half left. Um, uh, Amika, Ameka, Amize, Amizie, I don't know how to, my brother-in-law would know how to pronounce it, and NC State uh, fans. So anyway, they have to try an onside kick in order to keep the game alive. They try the onside kick. It was beautifully executed by NC State. They recover it, and... Next thing you know, a couple of plays later, they throw another deep touchdown pass to that guy, Ameka, Amezi, 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 that's how you pronounce it, Ameka Amezi, caught a late touchdown to make it 34-30, to and then Sam Howell drives them down the field and throws an interception in the end zone, that's the game, NC State wins miraculously, scoring 13 points in the final couple of minutes to win the game. It's one of the craziest f- football games I've ever witnessed. I just thought I'd give a quick shout out to the weekend. It was a very happy Thanksgiving watching great football. Cowboys lose. NC State comes all the way back to beat UNC at the gun. Um, great weekend of football. And it was capped last night by the Washington football team taking down the Seahawks 17 15. Um, so. I know what everybody's thinking, because this was my initial thought after the game last night. Washington barely won, though they absolutely dominated time of possession. They had the most time, the highest amount of time of possession in a game for Washington since 1984, nearly 40 years ago. Okay, dominated time of possession, had the ball for like 43 minutes. They had like 20 more first downs than Seattle did. They dominated on offense picking up first downs, efficiency, and then defensively they were not letting Seattle get past the sticks. Line of scrimmage, unbelievable. Bringing pressure all night. Russell Wilson never had time to set his feet and throw. And they ran the ball really well, Washington. And Seattle could not run the ball with Alex Collins or DJ Dallas. And so why did they win so close? With a kicker, it's a blowout. The missed kick... The missed extra point that was returned by Seattle for a two-point conversion, that changed the entire outlook of the game because instead of going to halftime leading 10-7, to you go to halftime tied 9-9 to in a bizarre twist, and your kicker gets hurt on that two-point run back by Seattle. And so now you don't have a kicker, and it's a three-point swing in favor of the road team. So Joey Sly, Washington's kicker, Joey Sly, is now out. You can't kick field goals. You sort of have to go for every fourth down in field goal range. And so now that changes the whole game. That changes how you approach things. Luckily for Washington, Seattle could not 
get anything going on offense. They were absolutely dreadful on offense. And that, and that so think about it. If Washington makes the extra point like a normal team does, it's 10 to 7. Even if they miss it, it's 9 to 7. And then they score a touchdown to start the second half as usual. And it's either 17 to 7 or 16 to 7. It's a two-score game. It's pretty much over at that point. It's 16 to it, cuz Seahawks only have 7 points. It's a two-score game late cuz Seattle still can't get anything going. Game's pretty much over. So with, with or without that two I mean it, it was dominance. And Washington would have made more kicks cuz it would not have just been 17 to 7. See cuz Washington got into field goal range a couple times. So maybe it's like 20 to 7 or 23 to 7. Washington should have blown the doors off Seattle. A lack of a kicker prevented that. People forget that. Put the game into perspective. You win. You're 3-0 since the bye week. Guess who, since your bye week, guess who's 0-3? The Dallas, or the, um, the Dallas Cowboys are 1-3 and in their last four. You've picked up two games on them since your bye week. And you're two games back of them. Okay, and you're literally the second place team in your division. You're the seventh seed in the playoffs right now. You control your own destiny. You play the Raiders next, and then you got five division games. It is now or never for the Washington football team to go out and be great. To show the world, we're not going to win the Super Bowl this year. But we're going to be a problem, and we're going to be a tough out one day for a lot of teams. And that's what they are now. They're a tough out. Tampa Bay couldn't beat them. Carolina, with all the momentum in the world last week, couldn't beat them. And Russell Wilson, on his birthday, couldn't beat them. That's three either MVP or borderline MVP quarterbacks. Last four quarterbacks Taylor Heineke's beat are Matt Ryan, Tom Brady, Cam Newton, and Russell Wilson. All have either won Super Bowls or won league MVP. Come on. I know where everybody is on Taylor Heineke. But you know who he reminds me of? Everybody keeps saying Brett Favre. He's very Tony Romo to me. I think the story more so than the actual talent, although their playing styles... I just sort of get reminded of Tony Romo when I watch Heineke because Romo was not a very, you know, standard, stereotypical quarterback. Like he, his, some of his play, I mean, it, you just felt like what when you watched him, it was teetering on disaster most of the time. And now there were times where Heineke, where Romo absolutely diced up a defense. But... Romo barely played his first three and a half years in the league. He was undrafted, small school, Eastern Illinois, and he's the backup. And then the starter gets, I don't think he got hurt, Bledsoe was benched, and Romo comes in, and Romo played as if this was the last game he ever had to play. The last game he could ever play was tonight, or today. And when you play like that, there's something dangerous about a devil-may-care type of play style. Kurt Warner played with this. I'll give you back in the day, Brett Favre played with this, and Tony Romo played with this. We, if we don't produce, we're not going back to the NFL. Like This is our last chance. And for a player that thinks they're on their last chance, that's oftentimes the most dangerous player. Because Tony Romo kept playing like that and kept playing like that, and oh my gosh... He had a five-touchdown game Thanksgiving Day, his first year against Tampa Bay. And everybody realized, well, Romo can play. And Romo had a long career in Dallas. Now, I don't know if Heineke 
will have a long career in Washington. But he plays, you watch Taylor Heineke, and he will always tell you, I just don't ever know when my last opportunity will come. Look, it might be, I mean, the next game, he might throw three picks in the first half, and that's it. They'll bench him, and he'll never see the field again. Or Heineke will come out and look great, but there's always still that little, like, "Eh, I don't know about Taylor Heineke. I don't know. And that's what he plays like. He plays like every opportunity is his last, so why not make the most of it? And that's a very dangerous quarterback to play in the National Football League. Remember that New Orleans game a few weeks ago? 20-41, no touchdowns, two picks for Heineke. Everybody was calling for Kyle Allen. Yeah, Kyle Allen, who nobody believes in, who hasn't taken a single snap all season, that's how close people like Taylor Heineke are to losing their jobs. Heineke was out of the NFL for the majority of the last two seasons. And once they gave him an opportunity, he felt like, well, this is it. This is my last opportunity. It's very dangerous. And so I really like what I'm seeing from him. I need to see how he plays the rest of the season. And I will say on my podcast right now, if Taylor Heineke can win out or win all but one game the rest of the season, he's my franchise quarterback. You can't turn on him. You can't turn on him. It's Taylor Heineke. He's the guy that led you to the playoffs when nobody thought you would, and the season was dead, and Taylor Heineke woke up and willed you back into the playoffs. That, my friends, is when I will officially declare Taylor Heineke the franchise quarterback of the Washington football team, or whatever they're going to be called in the future. I wanted to end my show with a little baseball talk. Obviously, baseball is going to go into a lockout tomorrow if all goes according to plan. Um, But some deals are getting done beforehand, one of which former and future Ring of Honor member of the Washington Nationals, Max Scherzer, has signed with the New York Mets. Obviously a division rival, a hated division rival. Now the Mets are going all in. They think they can win a championship in the next few years. Who knows? But I will say this because I've seen a lot of hatred from Nats fans about Max Scherzer going to the Mets. And I just want to say this. When the Nats signed Max Scherzer back in 2015, there was a belief. (coughs) Excuse me. There was a belief that it was a bit of a reach. Why would you spend that money on Max Scherzer when one day you could extend Strasburg? You could extend Jordan Zimmerman. Do you really even need Max Scherzer? And then Scherzer, all he did, his very first year was make an all-star game, pitch two no-hitters, and finish second in Cy Young, and then the next year he won the Cy Young. In seven years with the Nationals, Max Scherzer won a bunch of games. He recorded a ton of strikeouts. He was in contention for the Cy Young Every single season he was in Washington, he ended up winning two Cy Youngs in D.C. He led the MLB in wins twice, and he led the NL in strikeouts three straight years all in Washington. Pitched two no-hitters in one year. 
Two-time All-MLB first team. And he made six All-Star games in Washington and won the only World Series in franchise history. He had a 20-strikeout game, which is tied for the most strikeouts in a single game in MLB history. Most consecutive seasons with at least 250 strikeouts in, in Washington. And he has the most immaculate innings pitched of any pitcher in the history of baseball, tied with Sandy Koufax and Chris Sale. And so we're sitting here and we're chastising Max Scherzer, who is about to be 38 years old. By the way, 38-year-olds don't just take 43 annual dollars, 43 million annually a year. And we're, we're ripping on Max Scherzer as Nats fans for going to a division rival. Look, I understand Bryce Harper because he left with unfinished business when he went to Philadelphia. Max Scherzer, I mean, uh, Bryce Harper never won anything in Washington, and he's never won anything in Philadelphia either. Max Scherzer may not win anything in New York, but he won something in Washington. Never has a player or a pitcher been more dominant in the city of D.C. baseball than Max Scherzer. And not a lot of pitchers have had more dominant stretches with a single franchise ever than Max Scherzer did with the Washington Nationals. He gave them everything they had that he had for seven years. Don't boo him. Don't boo him when he comes back. Give him a standing ovation. Appreciate that he's the best player in franchise history. And he's going into Cooperstown with a Nationals curly W hat on. The first player in the history of the franchise to go into the hall to do that. That'll be Max Scherzer. Appreciate it. Stop being a baby about it. I love Max Scherzer. I hate that he's on the Mets. I hate it. And I'm going to hate it for years. And I hope that he's not as good on the Mets as he was in Washington. Deep down as a fan, I don't. But deep down, I root for the man of Max Scherzer. Because I loved what he did for our organization. And he'll always be remembered as a national first and foremost. That's my sermon on that. More football to talk later in the week. I hope there is a ton of football to talk about, but at least for now, I'm your host, Jacob Valier. This has been the Jadava Show. Happy Victory Tuesday to my fellow Washington football fans, and we will see you very soon.